The reading from Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but which with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shira, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Amorites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, 
For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known all over the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thanks be to God for his precious word. Great. Thanks very much, Megan. Please do have a Bible open with you. We're going to be in the, it's the last message in our series in the book of Isaiah this morning, in the last uh, two chapters of the first segment of the book of Isaiah. Can I invite you to pray with me as we get into God's word together? Our God and Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you'd help us to hear your voice speaking clearly and calmly to us today calling us through the noise, through the confusion, to firmly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. All right. <laughs> now, with a passage like we've got today, it can be very tempting for a preacher to approach it a little bit like a magician at a children's party. Explain what I mean by that. Um, it can be very tempting to kind of approach the text and go, right, instead of a hat, I've got a Bible passage in the Old Testament. Instead of a rabbit, I've got Jesus. What I'll do is I'll spend 25 minutes going through the text, explaining it, uh, looking at it in context, looking at what the language means, keep Jesus concealed until the very last five minutes of the sermon when I suddenly reach my hand in and pull out Jesus. And we all go home rejoicing. Now, I know it can be tempting to preach a passage like this in that way because that's what my first draft looked like. And so I decided it would actually be better to rewrite it completely for two reasons. I think one is that most of us, at the very least, have a a hunch that this is probably about Jesus anyway. You don't need me to tell you that. But I also felt we needed to get to Jesus a lot sooner in the message than just the last five minutes. Because only when we see Jesus in this passage will we be able to see why it matters for us and why the message of these chapters is so crucial for the times that we're living in right now. And so just to warn you, um, because I rewrote the message uh, between Thursday afternoon and now the outline uh, is for a different message. So feel free to ignore it, or you can kind of make it work if you take the third point, remove the word news, and replace it with salvation. But feel free just to ignore it completely. Now, I don't expect you to take my word for it, though, or just trust a hunch that these two chapters are about Jesus. I'd actually like us to all have absolute confidence that we can see Jesus in this passage. So from the get-go, I'd like to show you why we can know for sure that this is actually about the Lord Jesus uh, that's so we can move with confidence then to the implications of this passage, these, this, uh, these two chapters for us. 
And there are two big reasons why we can be confident that these two chapters are actually about Jesus. And the first one is based on how the book of Isaiah has been tracking so far. So we've actually been led to expect Jesus in the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. In the very first, we saw Judah's incurable problem of sin. But despite that, we've been led to expect that the Lord would raise up a righteous branch for his people in chapter 4. Then we were led to expect in chapter 6 a holy seed that would arise from the the shattered remains of God's people. Then in chapter 7, we're led to continue the, the progression and expect a special child who would be born, who would embody God's presence with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. That's chapter 7. And in chapter 9, we find that this child is connected to the light of salvation coming upon a darkened land, beginning in Galilee, and the child will be the fulfillment of God's promises to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the child of David will reign over God's people forever. That's what we find in chapter 9. And then this first section of our text this morning, so we come to chapter 9, now chapter 11, it's bookended by the title for this promised king, the root of Jesse. Uh, that's in verse 1 and, and verse 10 of chapter 11. Jesse, of course, was the father of King David, and Jesus was, was a descendant of David. And so being led to expect all of these Uh, expect someone who would fit all of these promises. Matthew actually joins the dots for us uh, early on in his own gospel. So in Matthew chapter 120, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, The New Testament confirms it for us. We've actually been led to expect Jesus in the first chapters of the book of Isaiah. That's the first reason. But the second reason why we can be confident that our passage today is about Jesus, and that's from the passage itself, is that only Jesus fits with the description of the root of Jesse, of who he is and what he would do. It's a bit like the story of Cinderella, you know, with the the prince the next day after the ball, he goes with the glass slipper and tries it on the feet of all the, 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 the maidens in the land. But only one person's foot actually fits in the glass slipper. Lots of imposters trying to force their feet into it. But there's only one that the slipper actually fits. And it's the same in this passage. There's only one person who this passage actually fits. Only he is the greatest king over the greatest kingdom. Only he will be able to initiate the greatest gathering of God's people from the ends of the earth. And only Jesus achieves the greatest salvation ever. So as we've said, Jesus is the son of David we've been expecting this whole time. But you might be asking, why is he called the root of Jesse and not the root of David? Well, it's actually to show the status 
of the promised king. He's not just going to resemble David like the way a son resembles a father. He will be comparable to David. He's going to be comparable to the one God made these covenant promises to in the first place. So he's not just David's descendant. He's a new David. It's as though he's descended not just from David, but from David's father. He'll be a king who derives his reign from God himself as God's spirit empowers him to rule and reign exactly as God's king should. He will rule in wisdom and understanding. He will rule in counsel and in might. He'll rule in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. His government will be directed purely by righteousness and equity. And it will be defined by righteousness and faithfulness. Friends, this is, this is the Jesus John sees unmasked at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man I saw, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And a few verses down, he identifies himself, saying, I am he who was dead and is now alive forevermore. You see, only Jesus fits the description of the great king of Isaiah chapter 11. But furthermore, only Jesus' kingdom fits the description we're given here. In verse 6 to 8, we've got this really bizarre picture. It's like, it's like a zoo where all the animals, the carnivores and the herbivores, the predator and the prey, they're all together in one enclosure with a, with a human child kind of tossed in for good measure as well. What's going on? Well, essentially, it's a return to Eden. It's a return to the, the, the beautiful world that God made before there was any stain of sin on the world. Before there was any conflict in creation, before there was any conflict between humanity and creation, between humanity and God. It's explained in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. How do we get there? How do we get the knowledge of the Lord across the whole world? Well, it's the root of Jesse at work again. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's the kingdom that the Lord established through Jesus, which is described for us in Revelation chapter 21, right at the end of the book, when John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
God himself will be with them as their God. Emmanuel. You see, friends, the Bible promises that the Lord Jesus will be the greatest king ever, a perfect leader who rules, uh, who rules God's way always. And his new kingdom will be a place where everything is put right, where everything is the way it was in Eden, completely cleansed of the stain of sin, but better. And it will happen as God reveals himself, his ways and his paths through his king. This is how the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the root of Jesse is lifted up, fulfilling the promises of chapter 2 of Isaiah. And of course, only Jesus fits the description of the greatest king over the greatest kingdom. But that's not all that happens as the root of Jesse is lifted up. Something else here fits only with the Lord Jesus. We're told there's going to be a great gathering of God's people from the four corners of the earth. Now, there are a lot of strange names in chapter 11, and Megan, well done for reading those. But if you went and plotted them on a map, you'd find that they're basically the, the furthest extent of the known world in Isaiah's day. It really is the ends of the earth. And just a little hint, when we read Shinar there, verse 11, that's the name for Babylon, which kind of foreshadows what's going to happen a little later. The remnants of God's people will be recovered from the ends of the earth. No one will be forgotten. No one will be too far away. No one will be too far gone. It'll be a great gathering, and it'll be a great defeat for the enemies of God's people. Now, I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings fan, more the the books than the movies. Um, And I've just read the book again for the sixth time. Sad, I know. But towards the end of the great battle on the Pelennor fields in front of the white city, when all hope seems lost and the darkness is gathering, the defenders look with dismay as a fleet of ships kind of comes down the river, and they think they're enemy reinforcements, and it's, it's, just, it's just finished. But then suddenly a great standard is unfurled on, on the foremost ship, and they realize it's the standard of the great king, and the armies of, of the free men are given courage And they rally to the great king's standard. And they're victorious. And at the same time, as the standard is unfurled, it also has this effect of throwing the enemy forces into a bewildered terror as they flee before the king, and then the king brings victory. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, the Lord raises a standard. He raises a signal to which his people from the ends of the earth shall rally. And there's no reason to believe it's, it's a signal any different or a standard any different to verse 10, that it actually is the root of Jesse that he's lifting. And again, there's only one person who fits the description, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus is facing the reality of his suffering and his death the night before he goes to the cross, before the Last Supper, and he says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, The voice has come For your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John makes a little editorial comment saying this was said to show the kind of death he was going to die. You see, friends, Jesus has God's endorsement and his ultimate concern is for God's glory and in his lifting up on the cross, he draws all of God's people to himself, gathering them not under a political manifesto or a system of ethics or or morals or even a theology, but gathered under the gospel the truth of God making a way for people's sins to be atoned for and brought into the presence safely of the holy God, just like we saw in chapter 6. And even more, Isaiah 11 looks forward to the defeat and the destruction of the enemies of God's people. And again, as happens so often in Isaiah, we've seen so far, the rescue and victory at the Red Sea in the Exodus is highlighted, verse 15 and 16. So Jesus, in John 12, explained this is about not the defeat of enemy nations, but the defeat of Satan himself, the ruler of the world, as Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross to draw God's people to himself and to defeat Satan and sin and death. So only Jesus fits with the greatest gathering that that is spoken of here in Isaiah 11. And then finally, in chapter 12, we're at the the end of the first major section in the book. And we we began with that incurable problem among God's people, the problem of sin in chapters 1 to 5. And we saw a holy God provide for the atonement of sin in Isaiah's vision of chapter 6. And now we're at the end with the Holy One of Israel exalted and glorified in the midst of his people, Emmanuel indeed. And basically, if God's people have an amazing future under an amazing leader in an amazing world to look forward to because of an amazing rescue, it's worth singing about and broadcasting to the world. This is a song about the the great salvation that God brings in chapter 12, just six verses. And it's a salvation which can only be accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the words in verse 5, they come straight from the Exodus, from the Red Sea, God's amazing rescue. As God's people stood on the far shore with dry feet, and they saw their Egyptian pursuers washed up dead on the beach, Moses led them in a song, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become... This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Exodus 15, 1 and 2. Notes. The song in chapter 12, therefore, is, is praising God for a rescue like the Exodus rescue. It's, it's a rescue against all odds. It's an impossible rescue where God is utterly committed to his people. That's why the writer to the Hebrews actually says... For Jesus has been counted of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And of course, only Jesus fits with the description of of the substance of this great salvation in the first line of the song. You will say in that day, verse 1, I will give thanks to, to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This is what was achieved on the cross. 
the turning away of God's anger at our sin so that we could enjoy God's fatherly comfort towards us forever. So I hope you can see by now that this is unmistakably about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't want to waste any time getting to Jesus today for a very important reason. It's the same reason that Isaiah's hearers needed the promise of a future king, a future gathering, and a future salvation, even 700 years in the future for them. Remember the background to this first, these first 12 chapters of Isaiah is the impending invasion by the superpower of the day of Assyria. It's the failed leadership of a faithless king and a people who are under God's judgment for their sin. And so it was tempting in Isaiah's day to think that all they had to look forward to was invasion by a brutal superpower and all the slaughter and suffering and misery that that entailed. And what does God give them to comfort them and give them hope? Well, he gives them the gospel. The good news that there will be a perfect king who will establish his perfect kingdom, will gather all of God's people into that kingdom as Christ for their sins and achieve their salvation forever, none other than King Jesus. It's tempting in 2021 to look at the world around us and think that all we have to look forward to is decreasing rights and freedoms, government overreach, increasing persecution, the demise of the West, and or death from respiratory failure isolated from friends and family, and the suffering and misery that any one of the above entails. What does God give us? Nothing new at all. He gives us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just have more details than the people in Isaiah's day did. Chapters 11 and 12 stand to tell us what Christians have to look forward to, friends, what we have to look forward to. Life together, full of joy forever in God's kingdom because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. These chapters remind us that only Jesus, Jesus is the only leader we can actually pin our hopes on. Every day it seems like the various news outlets use our government leaders for target practice, perhaps deservingly so at times. We can't ultimately put our hope in them, can we? Or, you know, we might want to look for leadership in more sanctified places among lobby groups and even Christian ministries. But can we really expect them to be any better? I mean, of course they should be. They claim to be, but our faith in Christian leaders has been severely tested in the last few years. After all, they're only human. We can't put our ultimate hope in their leadership either. In fact, I don't think we can imagine a leader anywhere who is always honest, who always does the right thing, has no skeletons in the closet, who always does the best thing, who never gets it wrong, who's never self-interested, and a leader who truly delights in the fear of the Lord. But Isaiah 11 tells us the King Jesus is. In fact, he's the greatest king we could possibly imagine the greatest leader we could possibly imagine. These chapters also remind us that that his kingdom is the only one worth living for. Nothing is going to achieve world peace like the establishment of Jesus' kingdom under Jesus' rule. And no kingdom is going to endure like his kingdom either. We've got to remember nothing has ever put the slightest damper or the slightest throttling on God's kingdom being established in Christ. 
There's no detours, no false starts, no plan Bs. Nothing has ever slowed down God's plans to establish his people in his place under his rule and blessing through his son and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the oppressive power of Babylon, of Rome, not his people's sin and failure. I mean, what makes us think that it'll be any different in our day? What makes us think that the powers and events of our time will have any more effect on God's plans than those did? These chapters also remind us that Jesus is the only basis for true unity among God's people. I think this is very important to say because it's a time when Christians are being pressured into aligning with all sorts of uh, petitions and pressures and political agendas. These things can be very confusing, but ultimately they serve to divide the one people the Lord is saving for himself in Christ. Does chapter 11 tell us? Well, all of God's people will be gathered together under the cross of Christ. It's the only basis for real unity. And finally, these chapters remind us that Jesus is the only one who can save us. We can look for salvation in all sorts of other places, in people and policies, uh, in material wealth and in in health and well-being, perhaps in information and knowledge. But only Jesus can deal with our biggest problem, which is God's anger at our sin. And for all these reasons and more, friends, the, the gospel is the solution to all the crazy stuff that is going on around us right now. The gospel is the solution to our fears. The gospel shows us where to place our faith. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will allow us to say, verse 2, with confidence. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It might sound a little bit lame, a little bit naive maybe, a bit too simple. Maybe it leaves too many questions unanswered. That's okay. Because what God gives us as the ultimate solution to the mess in the world and the mess of Christ. The gospel is the good news that his kingdom is being established. And so in a world that is stifling with confusion and noise, the gospel lets us breathe. In a world where the anxiety and the stress and the fear is so thick, it feels like you can almost touch it at times. The gospel lets us sleep. I think in a world where everything can seem so depressing, the gospel gives us a reason for joyful hope. We've been constantly bombarded with sin, and often we don't know what to believe. And, you know, things really weren't that different in Isaiah's day 3,000 years ago. As we come to the end of this series, as we've explored fear and faith according to the Bible, even if you take nothing else away, I want you to encourage you to take especially chapter 12, verse 2 to heart. Because no matter what happens tomorrow, or in the next week, or in the next month, or the next year, no matter which nation or power gets the upper hand, no matter if life gets easier or harder, restricted, no matter if we end up richer or poorer, 
no matter if people like us or hate us, no matter if we get sick or if we don't, no matter if we live or die, because of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, we've got the blessed privilege of being able to say with a calm confidence, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you that he's the greatest king over the greatest kingdom who will gather your people to enjoy salvation and blessing and joy forever. Lord, please forgive us for not treating the gospel with the worth and value it deserves. And help us, Lord, please give us the faith and the right fear of you to cling tightly to the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move towards the end of our